Sure enough, Russia invades. And two days later, we get an email from the Ministry of Defense saying, okay, yeah, yeah, you can send a team now. So four days after that, we had a team of former 18 Deltas, former Naval Special Warfare guys, medics, and prior army surgeon and anesthesiologist and OR nurse on the ground in Ukraine. So landed the first team there and basically started doing broad training and preparation. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, Wardox has you covered. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome Global Surgical and Medical Support Group founder and president, Dr. Aaron Epstein to Wardox. Dr. Epstein completed medical school at Georgetown University and is currently a fourth-year surgical resident at the University of Buffalo. Before medical school, he had experience in the State Department and with defense contractors deployed overseas. In this episode, Dr. Epstein talks about the mission of the Global Surgical and Medical Support Group to provide expert care and education around the globe in austere locations. The organization is made up of many military medical veterans with a variety of experiences, including special operations medics, as well as trauma surgery specialists. He talks about his organization's experience on the ground in Ukraine in the current conflict with Russia. He describes the challenges, needs, and opportunities for medical care and education in this war zone. I'm your host, retired Army urologist, Doug Soderdahl. Today, we're privileged to welcome the founder and president of the Global Surgical and Medical Support Group, Dr. Aaron Epstein to Wardox. Aaron, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate the opportunity. So you're currently in Ukraine right now, but tell us a little bit about your background and the impetus for Global Surgical and Medical Support Group that you started in 2015. My background was really doing kind of focusing on that kind of counterterrorism intel space right out of college after having done some work with the State Department, ended up working for a defense company and for them focused on their advanced projects, their intel section, the electronic warfare section, and really just kind of kept diving in that direction and later went to Georgetown School of Foreign Service and got a, a graduate degree in intelligence from their uh, security studies program and, and kind of continued in that realm. And basically, uh, several factors kind of came together that pushed me towards medicine. And one was watching the Arab Spring just unfold in the region and just things completely fall apart in the Middle East. And, and I'm sure, you know, you guys remember the whole idea of winning hearts and minds. And, and for me, approaching that through the security standpoint and, and, and the intelligence standpoint worked sometimes. But ironically, what I saw work all of the time was if someone just kind of showed some care for some, someone's kid or someone's mother or someone's father, he got that 100% buy-in. And I remember thinking how that compared to the, the usual kind of Uncle Sam approach of throwing a bag of cash at somebody. And that works sometimes. But really, I saw just showing that you care for people. And again, not to sound too kind of hippy-dippy, but really, that it just was shocking to see that be so effective. And I remember thinking, okay, maybe I should look into medicine as a way to kind of impact regions. And at the same time, I'm sure folks who have deployed all over the world and, and seen aid groups come in and go and dump supplies and leave, get their photo shoot with the, the media or something. And like, what's their impact really? Um, I just remember thinking there's got to be better ways to do it than that. So, so again, trying to figure out how to go into medicine, I came back to the U.S., 
and I started volunteering with the Fairfax County Fire Department because I thought you had to be a paramedic first. And eventually got into, I would say, almost like an argument with one of the ED docs down there and mostly just because I annoyed them to death. But uh, it was really every time we were dropping a patient off, I was asking, what could I have done differently? You know, tell me a different thing I could do in the field, treating people en route. And at some point, you just said, man, you're annoying. Go to med school and just figure it out, man. So applied to Georgetown then for med school after banging out the pre-med prerequisites and happened to have got in, which I consider a miracle at this point anyway. And really, once I got into med school and started down that path, I, I figured, okay, we can combine my old networks and security with kind of the new networks in, in medicine and bring out that expertise to these regions that I had so far seen, frankly, subpar care around the world. So really, we started focusing on Iraq and the Kurds just because at the time ISIS was in a full bloom and expanding into ISIS to Iraqi space. And really, we worked with the, the Kurds and the Iraqis to build up their capabilities. So in forming the group, one of my real key areas of focus was training our host nation partners as opposed to just being another group that dumped supplies or even a group that just did a few procedures. Because at the end of the day, let's say you do a couple of procedures for folks in the community. You've, you've helped those people, but you know what have you really done for the wider community? So we took the, frankly, the, the SF model of uh, building host nation partner capabilities as the way to be a force multiplier. And so, yeah, we started bringing over 68 whiskeys, 18 deltas, kind of the, the forward medical folks and physicians and surgeons for the back end. And we really hit hard the, the idea of training the Iraqis and Kurds. And, and it, it just kind of took off from there. We just saw excellent results and excellent outcomes on, on a much larger scale than if we really just tried to, like I said, dump supplies or even just do direct care for a small number of people. Now, did you start this while you were in medical school or did you wait till you finished medical school? I think it was about four or five weeks into medical school where I started it. And I'm sure most of the folks listening to this podcast are the hyper-achieving or overachieving types where you get into something and now you're bored and you got to do more. So yeah, that was a couple weeks into medical school. So where are you now in regards to training in medicine? I'm in my fourth year of surgical residency up at the uh, University of Buffalo. Did you ever think about doing the military medicine pathway? You know, I did, but everyone that I had spoken to had kind of emphasized that there's a lot more freedom of movement from the outside and helping to steer folks from the outside was a, a more controllable approach, I think, is what the, the best way to phrase it would be. So one of the things I found interesting about your organization is how many veterans with medical qualifications have joined your team. What are the unique experience that veterans have that really make a difference for what you do in places that are fairly austere and there's no other governmental presence there from the United States? Like you said, over 90% of our team members are prior military or intel community folks who either were medical providers while in service or, or became medical providers. And that lends itself to our teams being particularly well-suited for any of these environments. For example, in Iraq, we had dozens of instances where we had 18 Deltas who previously had deployed to the Iraqi theater several times, came out, got out of service, and then found it exceptionally meaningful to go back there, getting to work with the same communities that they had deployed among and then getting just getting to more 
kind of in a similar role. And so I would say another effect, not just to help the people we are aiming to help in these foreign countries, but, you know, frankly, helping veterans as a whole was almost like a counter PDC effect by being on our team. So you take these very high achieving special operations veterans, you get them in a stateside where their job may or may not be particularly meaningful if something didn't convert over to a civilian equivalent. And that that right there is something that has frequently led to pretty severe PTSD. But then you get these guys and gals on our team where they're deploying overseas again, they're doing meaningful work, they're in that team environment with other special operations folks, and you just see this complete 180 in their mindset. So not only is this something where our teams are benefiting our host nation uh, audiences because they're suited for it, but they're doing a great service for themselves, frankly, by, by being on the team. So the benefits really go both ways at that level. And then kind of looking at the physician surgeon level, you've got docs on our team who is preeminent as, you know, John Holcomb and, and Warren Dorlack and Steve Wolf and just the epitome of military surgeon. And, and these guys eat and breathe in a high intensity uh, situation. So when they come overseas with us, whether it's, you know, parts of Africa or Iraq and treating victims from in Syria or right now Ukraine, I mean, they're, they're already totally calm in this within the chaos. So you're not having to readjust someone who may have only been a civilian provider at a level one or level two trauma center somewhere within the continental U.S. I think the psychological adjustment for someone like that would be massive to work in these areas. But, but you take the veteran physician who's already experienced this and is solidly of that mindset. And it's just, it's just smooth watching them operate here. So your organization's been involved in providing medical support and education during the conflict in Ukraine. We mentioned you're there right now. How did your organization get involved in that? Ironically enough, months prior to this war starting, I've been directly emailing and communicating with the Ukrainian ambassador to NATO, kind of watching the Russian forces unfurl along the border. And we kept saying, this is, this is real. You guys should start training the population broadly. Because you got to remember that the, the Russians, I would say, spoofed us all into thinking they had the second strongest military in the world, which we have subsequently learned that it's basically a joke. And we thought that Ukraine would be overrun within three days. So there was a, a bit of alarm uh, that our group was trying to raise with our point of contact there saying, you need to prepare your population for total war. I would also say that at the time, everyone thought Russia would be insane to actually invade. So we kept getting, no, we're fine. We don't need the training. And, and I should preface this as well with our group is about 1,500 folks in total. Like I said, mostly former special operations or intel. And a lot of the intel side folks were watching the Russian movements and their deployments saying, look, like this is real. They're revealing op plans here. This isn't like a, a posturing for show situation. And we kept relaying that. And we kept getting the, uh, we don't need the training right now. And sure enough, Russia invades. And two days later, we get an email from the Ministry of Defense saying, okay, uh, yeah, you can send a team now. So four days after that, we had a team of former 18 Deltas, former Naval Special Warfare guys, medics, and prior Army surgeon and anesthesiologist and OR nurse on the ground in Ukraine. So landed the first team there and basically started doing broad training and preparation or as broad as we could ourselves. And we, again, took the kind of that force multiplier effect of training and then trying to spread that knowledge as far as possible. So a couple different lines of effort were underway 
from the beginning. One was to train the civilians in combat casualty care. The second was among the Ukrainian military, so training their folks in combat casualty care. And then at the physician-surgeon level, trying to prep as many surgeons as possible to do uh, damage control procedures. So that was the in-person effort. And then what we also did was we took the Defense Health Agency has the combat casualty care course for all service members, so the kind of the trainable version. And uh, we quickly translated that into Ukrainian using the, uh, the native Ukrainian folks on our team. So we got the authentic translation as opposed to some Google Translate nonsense. And then essentially blasted that out broadly because we have limited reach with human bodies on the ground. But as long as the population had internet access, we figured they could access the online translated version of T3C. And so quickly blasted that out. And I, I believe it has since become actually standard among the Ukrainian forces, our translated version. And it's also up on the Defense Health Agency site. As again, our translated versions up there as well. So again, trying to have like, you know, population-wide effects and just prepping them for combat medicine as much as possible. So did your team fall in on a hospital or did you go to a military facility to help train it? Where did you go to actually do it on the ground? It, I would say all of the above. So the civilians, um, we were essentially taking over school and like school gymnasiums and trying to get as many folks trained up there as possible. Military bases, we were on there training their soldiers. And then the main hospitals is where our physician surgeons were going. So really hitting every base that we could, just get as much coverage as we could. So in Iraq and Afghanistan, we saw a lot of counterinsurgency, counterterrorism type conflict and different injury patterns, perhaps, than what we would see in a large-scale ground combat offensive. Now, Ukraine is fighting a, and, and you mentioned, maybe not as formidable as we had thought, but they're fighting a real army. What kind of injuries and casualties are the Ukrainians seeing and experiencing on the ground in this war? So, actually, this is, a, I would say, a very... Interesting topic that I would say almost in the last kind of 48 hours really hit me. So the war itself has reverted to what I would say is World War I style, almost trench and artillery warfare. And I would say looking at trauma interventions and our approach to kind of emergency interventions with patients. I mean, I'm sure you, you guys remember ABCs, you know, airway breathing and circulation and how the last couple of years, you know, we switched it up to CAB. Well, what's interesting with artillery combat in, in trench warfare is that there's a lot of blast effects that's just straight up launching debris into the airways of these patients. And so we're reverting back actually to ABC. You got to clear the airway they may have like a bunch of mud packed in there that would just shot into their face from an artillery impact. So I would say one interesting effect of this type of combat that we're seeing is almost like a need to reassess that whole conversion from ABC to CAB. And now I think we got to consider going back to ABC, at least in the context of this warfare. So that's kind of one, I would say, interesting lesson that I've noticed recently here. But, but yeah, in terms of the overall combat, it's definitely a World War I-style artillery and trench warfare at this point. How would you grade the Ukrainian trauma system before this war started? You, you mentioned that they weren't all that interested or they didn't believe that Russia was going to invade and maybe they didn't need extra training. How well prepared were they to deal with what happened to them? I mean, how do you take a, a, a nation in Europe 
where they haven't seen total war since World War II, and then suddenly turn them into a nation and population that is fully engulfed in this type of warfare. So looking at the medical system, prior, they definitely did not have a medical corps within their military system. They still are working on it. Their trauma and burn specialists were more or less limited to kind of standard cooking fires, vehicle fires, house fires, and the trauma that you see as a European nation, which is not really that many penetrating injuries, or at least no, nowhere near what you would see in a U.S. level one trauma center. So I would say they were on par with expectations of a European nation prior to the war. And they are quickly learning the lessons that a nation needs to in terms of spinning up a medical corps, spinning up medics. How do you get that role one care, which frankly didn't exist prior? Their trauma and burn guys are very quickly trying to get up to speed, which is something I'm happy to talk about later, where we're bringing in these top tier surgeons and burn surgeons under GSMSG. And then another aspect is looking past the war. As the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan progressed, there was a need to focus on rehabilitation of soldiers after they came out of combat with various injuries. And it's starting to dawn on these folks here now that there are going to be a ton of folks that have amputations and other traumatic injuries that are going to need significant rehab after the war. So one of the projects that I'm essentially pushed with GSMSG is, a, is initiating a rehabilitation center with their Ministry of Defense and then separately one with Ministry of Health. So at least they get a couple tracks going to really start thinking about what comes after the war. So overall, I would say they're making progress. I think we're trying to help them learn the lessons that the U.S. learned over decades of war and trying to have them learn it in a matter of months, just so they don't have to kind of suffer the same way we have, but they're making progress. So you kind of mentioned the entire gamut from combat lifesaver, just you know, basic life support stuff for the soldiers, all the way up to complicated ICU, burn, surgical care, even rehab. What capabilities did they have before you guys got involved, you mentioned that they didn't have a whole lot of role one. What about role two, role three? Do they have any tertiary medical centers that do that kind of support? I would frankly say they didn't have role one. They didn't have role two. Their main civilian hospital centers that even had surgical specialists that are their tertiary centers, That's that was pretty much the only thing that existed before the war. So, I mean, it's it, like nothing else was really there before the war. But I mean, I can tell you, you compare it to the U.S. streamlined system of care, role one and two, frankly, didn't exist. And even now they're working on it. They're making progress. But all that really existed was just major civilian surgical centers in the major cities. One of the things that the U.S. and coalition partners enjoyed was a pretty much freedom of movement for evacuation from CASAVAC to AERAVAC, ground ambulance, all that kind of things. In Ukraine, how are those patients moved from the point of injury to where they need tertiary care? Looking at like other theaters where we've worked and trained host nation partners, like for example, I was in Honduras with another one of our GSMSG teams a couple weeks ago. Uh, we've trained teams in Africa and the Middle East. And I'm sure you guys and a lot of your audience has seen it where if someone's injured, you just throw them in the nearest car and try and get them as fast as possible to the nearest hospital. And frankly, that's what it has come down to in this situation. Now, it's not because they lack the resources or the 
platforms to do it. I mean, the reason is you have Russia as an enemy who, frankly, will just shoot anything and everyone. So they're particularly targeting ambulances and vehicles like that. And as far as medevac and airborne platforms, you get shot down in a second. So no, there's nothing flying. Um, Ground-based platforms, if it's a marked ambulance, it gets blasted almost before anything else. And so it's reverted to this, get them in a vehicle and drive them as fast as possible to the nearest uh, where they can get any higher level of care. Again, just because of the opposition in this conflict, it's not because, you know, you took you take them out of this conflict, they have helicopters um, and they have marked ambulances with medical capabilities for on-route care. It's just the combatants in this conflict are, is what is causing them to revert back to this third world level of throw them in a vehicle and get them out. So one of the things that you know, the U.S. is looking at in future conflicts is a similar inability to move patients easily and have really kind of come up with this prolonged field care concept. How do the Ukrainian military take care of patients and when they need to do that prolonged field care and they really can't find any vehicle to move the person off the battlefield or where they were injured? They're in a tight spot. I mean, the issue is, you know, prolonged field care is is an exceptionally valuable program and course of knowledge for folks to gain, but it's not something you can teach in days or weeks even. I mean, that's 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 a pretty in-depth uh, body of knowledge for folks to pick up. I mean, same reason you can't make a special forces unit overnight. And so everyone here recognizes the need for them to learn prolonged field care and get the capabilities and the equipment to do so. It's just, it's a, it's a long slog to, to get some someone at that level. And so they do have, I would say, a very small number of surgeons who also happen to be part of their military and special operations that are capable of doing that. But I mean, we're literally talking, I can count them on my hand. You know, it's like it's single digits of guys that are capable within the Ukrainian forces to actually execute prolonged field care. They need it. And we're working on training them on that, but it's just not something we can do overnight or as quick as we, we all want it to be done. One of the other things that we really discovered in previous conflicts was the importance of having a good theater trauma system that had medical really linked with military and had all of that you know synchronized. And so people knew what was going on throughout the theater and there was some plan. How would you say the current trauma theater medical system is in Ukraine? Again, it's one of those things where that to get to that level and to get to what I would say is the U.S. level of excellence in, in moving casualties and channeling them appropriately, that's something that I would say takes years. And I'm sure even in the hospitals that you yourself and your audience members work in, it's to get even the receiving trauma base to, to work properly. And these are folks who have already had careers in medicine. That takes a long time to make it work smoothly. So it's, again, one of these things where they know they need it. They know they need it to function better. But it's just something that now they're just learning through the crucible of war and not in any kind of controlled peacetime setting where they can kind of really iron everything out. This is, this is learning on the fly for them to figure out where casualties need to go, how to communicate that information, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, a, it's another one of these works in progress for them. How does your group liaison with the medical system? Since you have folks on the ground that are providing training, providing care, 
how, how do you coordinate what you're doing with what they're doing? You know, I would say, fortunately, we are tied in pretty much at all levels with the Ministry of Health and Ministry of Defense. So it, everything goes hand in hand. We are, I would say, daily coordinating with both sides, Ministry of Defense and Ministry of Health. And we actively have some of their team always with our team and some of our team always present with them. So, uh, so we maintain a very, very tight connection and I would say a constant connection with them. So we're coordinating at all times everything we do. When your organization went to a place in Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, we're fighting ISIS and there really wasn't any infrastructure to fall in on. You probably would bring your own equipment and things that you needed. How is that different in Ukraine? Are you falling into local hospitals and medical facilities to do things? Or do you have to bring everything that you need to use? So in Iraq and all these other places we've gone, we tried to actually make it a point to really entirely fall in with whatever the host nation had. And part of that was years ago, I remember being out in a village in Northwest Iraq and went to a medical clinic and they were showing me that they had a CT scanner. And I remember thinking that was great, but it was still in the wrapper from GE. Some organization donated a multi-million dollar piece of equipment that no one showed them how to use. And so what good was that? So really one of the fundamental aspects of GSMSG is that we aim to not introduce technologies or equipment that either can't be trained or sustained with the host nation partners. So in Iraq and all these other places, we just fell in with what they had and trained them up on whatever they had and what they could sustain. In Ukraine, it's a little bit different because you have a situation where it is a European country that theoretically does have access to better quality supplies. And and I would say one of the effects of this war is that every aid group on earth at this point is just dumping supplies into Ukraine. So they do have quite a bit of access to newer technologies, relatively speaking, newer technologies such as handheld ultrasound um, devices and portable x-rays and stuff like that. And so we will work with them and train them up on whatever they have. But also, if we know that something is able to be brought in and then subsequently sustained, such as, like I said, the handheld portable ultrasounds for that far forward, trying to do a fast exam out in the field or something, we will bring in the portable ultrasounds ourselves and then bring them up to speed on that. And similarly, other techniques and procedures, whether it's in the hospital, tertiary centers, or kind of the up-and-coming role one or role two sites. So um, I guess to answer your question, we we do bring in a lot of our own stuff in this theater in particular. But uh, again, the focus is always making sure that the host nation partner can learn and sustain on whatever it is we're teaching them. So there's been kind of an increased buzz in the use of autonomous technology in medical care delivery on the battlefield. And I was wondering if you were able to be involved in that at all, using drones to bring medicine, bring blood, bring equipment needed to places that you you didn't have to put it in an aircraft with people or in some kind of vehicle. Are those being utilized today? So actually, interestingly, there's a definite absolute need for that in this theater, partly because airspace is completely denied due to Russia just shooting everything down. An example where that would have been critical was the defenders in Mariupol, where if it had been a situation where supplies could have been airdropped by drone, they would have held out longer. But it got to the point where the Ukrainians were trying to almost lob in 
supplies with their own helicopters. And once those started getting shot down, they had to abort that attempt. So if we had, I mean, frankly, if me and my group and our, our own guys who have driven UAVs and, and stuff for the military in the past, I mean, if we could get our hands on those, it would be, you know, even a, even a local game changer wherever they're operating. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's needed. It's just there isn't enough of them. So, I mean, if, if there were access to more drones and we could get them out there, that would be, I think that would be a, at least a game changer in whatever the AO is that we're putting them out. So how does your team stay safe on the ground? What kind of security do you have and how close are you to the major fighting? It depends on which part of the team we're talking about. We have our, our guys are pretty much spread out from literally from Lviv in the far west to I mean, I was on the Russian border myself last week on the on the east side. So we've got the entire country covered. And in terms of safety, I think that goes back to our group's makeup itself. Given that the vast majority are former special operations or intel, I would say they're fairly adept at being able to protect themselves. It's one of those things where if one of our teams got in a sticky situation, the team itself can actually pivot into a, I would say, a fairly robust defensive posture rather than relying on some outside security assistance to suddenly make things better. So security, first and foremost, is inherent and organic to our organization. And yeah, you just you just step it up or step it down based on what the proximity is to a Russian action. What kind of medical specialties are part of your group? And are there any specialties that you're lacking and really need? I would say we have pretty much every specialty covered. And within the 1,500 plus folks on our roster, three to 400 of them are physicians. In this theater in particular with Ukraine, we're routinely bringing out trauma, like trauma critical care, burn, orthopedics are definitely kind of the highest demand ones. But beyond that, neuro, and then for the other casualties that we're seeing, pediatrics and OBGYN are definitely needed as well. But by and large, if you got the the trauma, critical care, burn, and ortho, you're covering most of what is coming in. And as far as when you ask, what, what do we need more of? You know, I can kind of quickly dive into this a surgical rotation program that I started a couple of weeks ago, where basically what I'm doing is I'm bringing in four to six specialty surgeons for two-week rotations to work in the main hospitals. And they are assisting the Ukrainian counterparts in complex procedures, uh, as well as kind of doing hands-on training for them. We are continuing to build out these rosters. And so what I would say is if there are prior DOD specialists that are trauma, critical care, burn, ortho, even neuro specialists, and they are interested in doing two weeks on the ground with our guys, get in touch and we will figure out a way to get you over there. I mean, we are bringing nursing specialists as well. I'm sure I'm sure you guys have heard this, but all over the world, I think they're starting to realize how critical nursing is uh, just to patient care and outcomes. And so we've also incorporated bringing some, let's say, powerful nurses on our teams as well. So if you got any folks that are highly qualified and interested, shoot them our way and we'll see if we can get them over there. You almost, I almost hate to bring this up, but there's always the, the talk of administrative issues like credentialing, liability. How do you guys deal with that? As far as credentialing, I would say the, the well, actually both of these, I would say the benefit of us having a very pristine and high quality past performance and track record is that our host nation partners know who we are and what we do, 
and uh, essentially give us the pass when it comes to getting the work done and not having to really worry too much about that administrative side. We do the vetting ourselves. So when I said people should apply, you can also rest assured that they will be vetted heavily by other DOD specialists and highly qualified folks. And there is a fairly extensive vetting uh, that goes into getting on board the GSMSG team. But once you're on and we get you over there, uh, you're, you're good to go. So you mentioned a little bit about going back to ABCs from what you learned from being on the ground. What other lessons are your teams learning about providing medical care in this conflict that might be applied in the U.S. or even for future conflicts that coalition and U.S. may be involved in? I think we're learning a lot and we're still processing that information. We've got decades of experience in asymmetric warfare and unconventional warfare and counterinsurgency campaigns, but we don't have experience, I would say, in terms of near-peer conflict or what, what to expect in a near-peer adversary. And again, while the expectation was that Russia would be a near-peer adversary that we could learn from in this conflict, we've subsequently seen otherwise. That being said, we're learning more about modern munitions and, and how they're implemented by Again, I would say near-peer with big air quotes. And so how do we deal with cruise missile strikes? Or what's the implication of hypersonic weapons, even though Russia decided to use it against the mall, I believe, which is kind of a waste. But stuff like that, or wide-scale thermobaric weapon use, or even white phosphorus and incendiary devices and stuff like that. So I, I think there's a lot that we are learning as far as the arsenal of a near-peer adversary. And I think if we're looking at combat applications, let's try and learn this now what does it mean if China goes after Taiwan? And it's going to be probably the same, massive, massive bombardments. And so how do you prepare for that? Because that's essentially what Russia is doing right now. They've reverted to using mass artillery and mass indirect fire just to essentially erase grids. And, and so I, I think there's a lot to learn. I wish I had enough brain power to tell you right now what those lessons are going to be. And But I, I'm, just, I'm just not smart enough to, to know the lessons yet, but I can guarantee you we're going to have a ton of knowledge coming out of this conflict. Does your organization have a research arm or do you collect data to try and learn lessons? Yeah, we are getting more into that space. I think we have one or two papers already in the work and we will continue to crank out anything useful as it comes up. And anybody, and again, I put this out to your audience too, if, if they're interested and want to help get papers published on this conflict, we are happy to bring people on, on board the, the team for that. So it's an open opportunity. So if, if our listeners are interested in learning more about the organization and what you guys do, and perhaps volunteering to serve or support the mission, what are the next steps for them? I would say in general, usually have people apply through our website and that's kind of a catch-all for everything. Given, I would say, your audience and their kind of their higher caliber, higher intellect, and specific niche backgrounds, I'd frankly say you can just email me uh, directly. My email address is aaron.epstein at gsmsg.org. I would say just make sure you have your DD214, your CV, and a photo ID in that email, and we can pass that and fast track it along to our vetting process. And uh, we'll, we'll just try and make that go as quick as possible. We've been speaking with Dr. Aaron Epstein on Wardock's podcast. Aaron, thanks again for sharing your experiences with the Global Surgical and Medical Support Group 
And best of luck, continuing your mission of providing high quality medical care and training in austere locations across the globe. And thanks for joining us from Ukraine. We hope that you stay safe and continue to accomplish the mission. Thanks. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk to you and your audience. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of War Docs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's wardocspodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.